for all the early people you bring on or co-founders or whatever, vest into your equity, vest into your position. Um, because you're getting married to somebody. In some cases, you might not know the person very well. And, and maybe you have a differing opinions or something, three, four, six, eight, ten months, a year into it, or a different direction you want to go, or a pivot you don't want to make. Or, um, so if you don't vest into your equity, it, it, it makes getting a, a kind of a, a divorce very difficult. Um, so if you, know, if you and I were entering into a business, Devin and I said, hey, we're just going to split the equity 50-50 right from the get-go, and then we get to a point where we decide we want to go a different direction, now I've got to deal with you. You have 50% of the equity. I have 50% of the equity. As opposed to if we were on a vesting schedule where, you know, every year we're investing 10% until we got to what it was and we decide to part, um, you know, we would have some sort of uh, some sort of recourse to not have to give up half the company or not have to buy half the company or whatever it is. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great uh, guest on the podcast, James uh, Reganor. I, and I'm worried I'm going to mispronounce his last name, so hopefully I was close. Uh, but uh, James uh, left high school as a junior, and or after the junior year, and went into the Air Force, and went into the Air Force Academy and got a degree, was in the Air Force for, I think, about 30 years, and then uh, retired and went to work uh, for a supplier for a while um, within the, some of the kind of governmental um, agencies, and then uh, got into 3D printing business as well, from uh, and uh, did that for a period of time. I started creating digital assets and then went on his own for uh, for a few years and then uh, went and did another startup. COVID hit, pivoted to ventilation systems, and then after COVID, shifted back into the aerospace industry as well as I'm doing some things with aircraft. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, James. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here, Devin, and uh, look forward to uh, to our discourse today. Uh, that was that was it was a generous introduction. So, uh, and it happened all about that fast. So that's awesome. So thank you. Awesome. Well, I'm hope hopefully not quite as fast. Otherwise, your whole life has been about thirty seconds. So maybe with that, um, as we dive in. So I just packed a much longer journey into the thirty second version. But why don't you unpack that a bit and kind of tell us how you know life started uh, as you're uh, wrapping up high school and getting into the Air Force. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, so like everybody, uh, you know, back in the uh, early '80s, uh, rolling out of the uh, Carter years and Ronald Reagan uh, years coming up, uh, I was excited about kind of what the new world's going to look like, and and was uh, looking for an adventure. Uh, I was also uh, ready to start my life, as much as odd as that sounds. But at that point, I wanted to just get on, get moving forward. Um, and I worked at a grocery store, and every night an Air Force recruiter would come in. His name was uh, Tech Sergeant uh, Chuck Tashe. And uh, I would say, hey, I want to go in the Air Force. He'd say, hey, come see me when you finish high school. i say, hey, I want to go in the Air Force. And we went back and forth. Finally, I said, dude, I'm going. So I went down to his office and uh, uh, signed up for the ASVAB test. I scored really well on it. He said, I'm going to take a risk and let you go in open general, which normally you didn't do. You wanted to have a, some sort of committed job. Uh, I took the risk, and, and it worked out well for me. And uh, from there, I was able to uh, move forward as an enlisted person in the Air Force, and then from there, get accepted in the Air Force Academy. I did my time there, went off to fly jets. Uh, really had a great opportunity in the Air Force, 149 countries, all 50 states uh, I managed to visit. Um, but uh, some great things happened in there. 
one of them I worked uh, at one point, I worked at kind of this think tank called Checkmate, which is a, a deep strategy cell. Uh, another uh, staff assignment, I, I actually went to work at the White House. Uh, I was the deputy executive secretary in the executive office of president for the National Security Council. I was hired by uh, George W. Bush, so 43. I was the senior member to stay for the transition to Obama. I stayed the first six months. And then from there, I went out and led a large logistics organization, 15 locations, 11 countries across three continents, doing about 65,000 maintenance touches, uh, moving uh, 2 million people, 570,000 short tons a year. So really uh, out of that kind of drove my innovation. Uh, I was always starving for spare parts. When I left the Air Force, you know, I said, there's got to be a better way to figure this out. There's got to be a better way to get spare parts out to places like Manas, Kyrgyzstan or Balad or, or Bagram or some of these bases we're at where we'd have airplanes get broken and have to repair them. Um, I went to work at Moog, which is an aerospace. Let me just company. jump in really quick yeah. and just ask, because so, it sounds like, you know, so you ended up working, I think, with the Air mm -hmm. Force for 30 years. Is that right? Yeah, 31 years. Yep. So, yep. So now that, you know, that's a, a pretty good period of time, both as far as or the amount of time you stay with the Air Force, as well as that's, you know, a lot of times a, a fairly full career. And so as you're coming out, you know, and re retiring, so to speak, from the Air Force, was the intent, hey, I'm going to take a break, relax, catch my breath, and otherwise have fun, or just saying, hey, I'm on to my next thing, and here's my next opportunity. So it's kind of weird. So uh, um, metaphysically, so I ended up in Buffalo. Let me just go walk backwards a little bit. So when I went into the, the Air Force, um, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And when you enter any of the services, you would go to a MEP station, which is how you enter a service. You get sworn in and they ship you off to base training. It happened to be in Buffalo, New York uh, for Erie. So when I finished, um, I had offers from a couple of different companies. One of them was here in Buffalo, New York. It's about 80 miles from my home. Uh, Erie, Pennsylvania is fairly depressed right now. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot happening there. Um, but coming back to Buffalo, which is where the headquarters was for Moog, kind of closed that first loop metaphysically, allowed me to start the next, kind of the next loop. And I wanted to do that with as much, as much vigor and get as much success out of it as I could. But uh, a, a tension exists between time, responsibility, and money. So when you retire, you have to figure out where you want to play in that. You know, if you want to take on a lot of responsibility, it's going to cost you a lot of time. Most likely you'll make a lot of money. Um, if you want a lot of time, you need a job with less responsibility, chances are you make less money and so on. So you have to figure out where you fit in there. I, I just jumped in the pool. I got hired as an executive and uh, um, thrown to the sharks right away working in the military aftermarket for this company, which was an area I was familiar with um, and able to leverage my Rolodex. But uh, it, it was, uh, I ended up leaving there three years later because I was just running other executives, right? So it was, I wasn't able to really expand um, you know, kind of the uh, left side of my brain, which is something I was eager to do. Um, but when we acquired, when Moog acquired a 3D print business, I said, hey, let me take a look at 3D printing. It's going to be commoditized, but let me look at what the future looks like in this digital world. I'll pause there and we can unpack that as, as we go. But uh, I got a little sidetracked, sorry. No, you're good. So now you're coming out of the, you're coming out of the, the Air Force. You've done that for a period of time. Say, okay, retirement, you know, do I want to do it? Do I not? And sounds like, you know, kind of said, hey, mm -hmm. Given the balances of those various factors, I'd like to continue to work. And you went into being a um, so working as a for a, a business that does uh, supplies for a period of time. Now, as you're doing the that business, I think you also started to get into 3D printing. Is that right? And kind of maybe yeah. started as a bit of a side hustle or a hobby in that, and then it kind of evolved into being more of an actual business. Is that about right? Uh, no, I, I actually, so so the 3D printing was acquired by Moog, the company I worked at. I said, let me let me bring that into my portfolio. 
hmm. and start to look at it. And the idea was to put a 3D printer in the middle of a depot, one of these military depots, and kind of create a fox in the hen, in the hen house type environment where work would come to us because we had a capability there. Um, we offered to give a, a printer to the government, a million dollar printer to the government. They're like, we, we can't, we don't know how to accept free things. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a little convoluted, but, but out of that, um, you know, I did a lot of scenario based planning. We developed a couple of scenarios that really drove me to where I'm at today. And uh, I'll just share that scenario with you, but you're on an aircraft carrier, you're in the Indian ocean, you have an F-18 that has to fly a critical mission, lives are at stake, it needs a part, you have a 3D printer. How can you send a part directly from the part manufacturer out to the aircraft carrier so that it can be printed and put on the jet. And standing on the aircraft carrier looking backwards, which is kind of how we, we do the scenario-based planning, we accept the fact that what we're asking ourselves is possible. And I'll dive in that a little bit more, but what we found was there were some gaps in there and really the gaps um, were, were around trust. How do you trust that nobody corrupted your data? Your enemy didn't come in and corrupt that digital data. And that the processes that were required to be followed for the parts to be airworthy were actually followed. Um, and from there, we started to look for we're, we're trust solutions. Now, mind you, this is November 2015. Crypto was just starting to become kind of a Bitcoin. Crypto was just starting to become kind of a buzz. And I had a colleague come back from MIT and said, hey, look, have you thought about blockchain? And blockchain being the foundation of cryptocurrency, we said, no, we hadn't. We didn't know much about it. Um, I dove into it real quick and said, this is a really elegant solution for this problem. It, it allows us to, to, to establish trust outside the four walls of a factory. Hmm which was significant. So once you unmoor it from the cryptocurrency craze, there's actually quite a few tools there that are you know, beneficial in the industrial world. Uh, hmm. So that's so now, So, and no, that makes sense. So now you're saying, okay, uh, both on the crypto side, on the, just the 3D printing side in general, mm -hmm. and there's a business case we've made there as well as digital assets and kind of giving, getting into that. You know, if it start, sounds like it started a, a bit with the, the business you're working on and the opportunity you had. And I think at one point or at some point along the way, you transition to doing it as your kind of your own business or your full-time or full-time yeah. endeavor. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, once we married those two things up, the 3D print build file and blockchain provenance to create digital assets, we said, Hey, this is interesting. We actually created a, a, a new form of uh, a new, a, a new modality of logistics. If you would, you can now send things digitally to the point of use to manufacture at the time of need. So no longer do you have to ship by air, land or sea, which are the traditional modalities of logistics. And we also created a new type of commerce, and I won't say created, we, we, we took a type of Congress, uh, commerce that was very popular in the B2C world and made it a B2B. So for example, that's digital commerce. So you consume music, video, apps on your phone, right? So consumers are consuming digital commerce every day. But now to make an industrial application where I can sell a digital file to somebody and allow them to then print it at the point of use, um, you know, that upsets the whole apple cart, right? We're able to take lead times that were 265 days and reduce them down to six hours. And that's from order to full production. And in another case, we did a real time use case where we had a flight launch from Auckland, New Zealand and route to Los Angeles. They had a cabin park that failed um, that would have rendered one of their business premier seats um, unoccupiable for three legs. They would have lost thousands of dollars of revenue. Um, we seeded a digital part in Singapore. They purchased it. I was on prem in uh, LA, printed the part out of a suitcase that I had with a printer. In it. They did the quality inspections when a plane land, they put it on it. But all of a sudden, everybody goes, holy smokes, we can do this. We can create these digital supply chains. We don't have to maintain these inventories and so on. Um, it really became an exciting venture. So I left at that point and oh. said, I'm going to go out and evangelize. And I spent about a year and a half going to all the shows, uh, traveling the world, actually evangelizing this digital supply chain solution in a company called Blockchain Resources Group. And then 2019, August of 2019, I said, I'm ready to productize this. I went back to the company where I invented the uh, 
intellectual property, Moog, and said, hey, I want to get these patents that I uh, co-invented, a license for that and the other IP, because you're not using it. So we swapped equity for a license, and we set out on a, our company called Veritex. And um, we got our first government contract very quickly, and then we ended up in a program called Techstars that was oh, sponsored uh, by the Air Force. It's a large accelerator with different sponsors. This one was Air Force. And then the pandemic crashed down on us. So, but uh, that's how we that's how we got to where we were. So Moog is still a great partner. Um, they own about nine percent equity in the company. They're uh, also a tier one aerospace supplier. So it's rare that you have a startup that's got a you know kind of a big brother that's helping shepherd them through. But that's how it was. No, and that uh, definitely makes sense. And sounds like it was uh, an interesting and, and fun part of the journey. Now, one thing you just hit on towards the end there was that, you know as you're getting into COVID things started to slow down or shift or otherwise necessitate a, a pivot or an adjustment. And I think that's where you got into a bit of the, the ventilation systems and doing that yep. for a period of time to address the need during COVID. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, we were up in Boston uh, at uh, State Street building on one Lincoln, beautiful place. And for Techstars, they said, hey, look, we're going to go virtual. Um, there was a huge outbreak in Boston at the time. That was one of the first big super spreader events, which was actually part was in our building and part was on the street. So uh, in fact, my son who's part of the company had to go to the hospital. He had a bad respiratory illness. Uh, chances are it was probably that. Um, but we packed up the car, we're driving home. And I said, you know, this pandemic, and, and I had, um, I was doing these little just blurbs uh, putting out on YouTube. And for the about six weeks before I was talking about the pandemic saying, hey, this is gonna be a big deal. It's gonna impact all the supply and so on. And sure enough, that's what happened. So in that car ride home, I said, look, we should open our aperture. We've always been after aerospace, medical, and industrial applications where there's a um, you know high consequence of failure. That's kind of our sweet spot. So I said, let's open the aperture. Let's get into medical right now. But I didn't want to risk the whole company at it, so we stood up another entity. So that day driving home, I said, we're going to stand up another company. We're going to look at how we can support digital supply chains in the hospitals. Every hospital's got kind of a closet of misfit toys. It's missing a knob, a switch, or something. So they have equipment that's out of operation because they can't get parts to it. I said, let's figure out what that looks like and let's kind of hunker down. That night I went to sleep. I had a dream about a new type of ventilation system. Now this will sound hokey to you, but I'll give you the backstory why, why it was in my head and why it came out this way. Um, and I woke up with an idea. So I penned the idea real quick, drew it out, rough sketch, um, sent it over to an engineering friend of mine said, hey, look, can you make some engineering or drawings on this? And uh, um, I'm going to patent this. So very quickly called my attorney and said, let's uh, get some provisionals set up. I set up a company called Rabbit Medical Parts, uh, got that all together, got the first round of designs. Um, and then I went back to the DOD who was, you know, at this time we thought there was going to be this huge ventilator, you know, problem in the U.S. and globally. I said, look, I got this idea. It's based on a KC-135, which is type of airplane supply, air cycle machine. It's going to be a high performing, low cost ventilator. And I, well, we're interested. Um, so we drew it up, gave it to them. Uh, we went from that idea, dream, to the DOD DPA Title III contract, the same one Tesla, General Motors, and Ford got in 12 days. Now, when I was in the Air Force, I didn't buy toilet paper in 12 days. All right, mind you, start a business with absolutely no reputation. Um, so, so we did that, um, and it was quite successful. However, there wasn't this huge problem that we had, and the others that were making the ventilators of the day that were you know out there, um, you know, they made enough production, so there wasn't a need for what we're doing. So we got all the way up to the FDA, uh, what's called emergency use authorization steps. And that's where the funding cut. And they said, look, we like the idea. They red teamed it. They brought in a whole bunch of respiratory therapists and doctors that looked at what we did. They said, wow, this is remarkable. Because we necked down what, you know, was hundreds of parts down into 40 parts manifold um, using air 
off the air oxygen off the hospital wall at 50 psi going through a venturi pump um, to increase pressure and volume and we're able to create a very wide operating envelope for this uh, for this um, ventilator solution um, and that's where we're at so we're waiting for the patents to come through on that we'll eventually take that ip we'll, we'll, we'll produce the product um, we'll do the approval and it'll be ideal for probably places like india and indonesia and uh, you know asia and south america and stuff because you know we can sell it for low dollars we've created a digital supply chain to support it all but about four parts in it are 3d printable um, and there's 40 parts total to include the six screws that hold it together you know so um, it's a pretty incredible design uh, pretty incredible machine when you think about it no, sounds like it was a, a quick and a, a good pivot and a fun journey. So now as that kind of brings us up a bit to where you're at today, you're be looking out a bit into the future. You see things more as going back to a bit more of the, you know, military aircraft, 3D printing, digital assets, is it more on the ventilations unknown because the world is still up in flux or kind of if you're to look out and say, you know, the next six to 12 months, where do you see things heading and uh, what's the, the next steps for you? I think what we learned through the pandemic and what we're still learning today is companies spent the last 10 to 15 years leaning, right? They leaned down to supply chains, internal processes, loss of elasticity, and that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, you have to look no further than Ford that's got all those F-150s parked waiting for chips or any other companies, right? Supply chains, uh, um, the, the rigid supply chains are a thing of the past. So being able to move into digital supply is going to be a big deal. So, so it's actually serendipitous that this happened and we're a digital supply chain solution. So, you know, we went back into aerospace, we picked up a, a large uh, government contract as a prime for that. And now we're building out uh, a digital supply chain solution for the Air Force logistics. And it, it's, it's a big deal because that's a, you know, that's a big spend, right? If you look at the DOD and you look at, uh, you know, aircraft parts and stuff, it's about $77 billion a year. Um, and then if you're going to build some structure for the DOD, you can look outward and say, hey, look, the Boeings and the, you know, the, uh, um, Honeywells and the Lockheeds and others. If you want to supply to the DOD, you're going to have to come through this portal, tender into their digital supply chain. Um, so it's a huge opportunity for us. And right now we're in the process of, you know, getting through the first phase and showing that we can do it. But it focuses around um, creating a digital marketplace. So like a digital Amazon where you can point click buy parts also about providing um, a data fabric. So, you know, they have all these legacy systems that they have to extract data out of. So you got to lay a data fabric layer over. And our piece is providing providence to that data. Um, so that you have that data integrity, um, so that you have data assurance when you start running AL and, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, AI and ML type of applications on it. And then we're building an application layer, which is like a manufacturing and execution system okay. using um, blockchain smart contracts to you know, create these 147 step and beyond um, manufacturing uh, flows, right? In a trusted manner. So with verifiable ID and some other pieces that, that play into it. But we create a very secure environment because the DoD operates under a framework right now, which is called Lua. Uh, LUA, logistics under attack. So every day our adversary and our competitors are trying to attack our digital supply chain, whether it's at the Air Force proper or at the suppliers, you know, they're out attacking the Boeings and Honeywells, trying to steal IP um, because they know it's cheaper to steal it than it is to, you know, invent it themselves. No, I think that that sounds like it will be a, a, a fun and uh, an interesting journey ahead and uh, definitely one that uh, will, uh, I'm sure, be uh, fruitful and uh, be enjoyable. So, with that, now as we kind of get towards the end of your journey, and we've kind of started from from the beginning and worked our way to the present, maybe even looking a little bit into the future, great time to transition to the two questions I asked you at the end of each episode. So we'll jump to those now. So the, the first question I always ask is, um, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made, and what did you learn from it? 
So I, I think the, the worst business decision I ever made is, um, you know, structurally, when you set up a company, there are some things that you have to do. And it, it kind of gets kind of convoluted in the idea of I'm trying to push this idea forward. You got to do parallel lines of effort. So at the same time, you're trying to get your technology moving forward, get your idea moving forward. You also have to structurally create two things. One is an avenue to take money. Um, we we were very late trying to create something. You should you know you should have a safe or you should have a uh, a convertible note the minute you start. So if somebody says, hey, I like that idea, I want to give an investment, you have a vehicle to take money. Uh, we didn't have a vehicle to take money for a long time, which which was silly because we had people that were willing to to invest. And uh, the the other piece is to to understand um, your equity grab. And I, I would tell you, you know, we entered into we entered into an accelerator. I won't name which one. We've we've, we've done a couple, but we entered an accelerator. And, you know, they take 6% equity in this case, um, 6% is a big deal. But when you're starting out, you think 6%, not a big deal. Uh, so that to me was kind of a bad decision, especially since we didn't get much out of it. There was, you know, the, the, the promise of investors on the end and all this other sort of stuff. It never really materialized. Um, that, that costs us time and it costs us equity. That 6% equity is very precious to us, especially now we're doing series A round, um, which we're uh, going through right now. When's this, when's this going to air? Um, this will air in about a month or so. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to, so we're, we're going through, uh, we're going to go back and cut that out. So right now we're, we're raising money and that 6% would make a difference. I, I don't want to mention the series A. Piece. No, I, I think that, uh, that definitely makes sense. And I, I think that the main thing you're hitting on is that, you know, equity, there's always a trade-off between equity versus cash. And in other words, when you're a business, you can, the more money you get in, especially earlier on, it's usually the most expensive money. The earlier on, the more expensive the money because you're having to give up a larger portion of the equity. But at the same time, you're also saying, if we don't have equity, if we don't have money, if the business isn't able to support itself, it's not going to be able to um, get anywhere. And so that equity isn't worth anything. So it's yeah. always that constant attention. Pull and tell yeah. you that, that's yeah. attention. So yeah. I think that that's definitely something to learn from and uh, something that uh, every uh, startup and small businesses or has to deal with and grapple with. Second question I always ask is, if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? I think the one piece of advice to give them is for all the early people you bring on or co-founders or whatever, vest into your equity, vest into your position um, because you're getting married to somebody. In some cases, you might not know the person very well. And, and maybe you have a differing opinions or something, three, four, six, eight, ten 10 months, a year into it or a different direction you want to go or a pivot you don't want to make. Or, um, so if you don't vest into your equity, it, it, it makes getting a, a kind of a, a divorce very difficult. Um, so if you know if you and I were entering into a business, Devin and I said, "Hey, we're just going to split the equity 50-50 right from the get-go," and then we get to a point where we decide we want to go a different direction. Now I've got to deal with you. You have fifty percent of the equity. I have fifty percent of the equity. As opposed to if we were on a vesting schedule, where you know every year we're vesting ten percent until we got to what it was, and we decide to part, um, you know, we would have some sort of uh, some sort of recourse to not have to give up half the company or not have to buy half the company or whatever that is, because you're dealing in terms that are at that point in the startup, you're dealing in terms that aren't real. What's 50% of your equity worth a year into a startup? Zero, most likely, right? But from your perspective, you look at long-term potential and you go, hey, you know, five years from now, this might be worth 5 million, 10 million, 100 million, whatever it is. So it's really hard for you to kind of let go and start to make decisions. So what happens is a lot of times you just have to flush that endeavor and say, I'm out, go start up again, something else. But you don't want to do that, right? You want to keep that momentum going and so on. So by vesting into your equity with your early employees or founders or whatever, it gives you options. And optionality is key uh, in any startup, especially in foundation structures you move forward. 
Um, and, you know, and it goes back to the same question you asked before. It's the equity piece, right? Equity today, when you're in a startup, doesn't mean anything. Having a couple of people that say, you know, hey, we're going to run towards the cannons. And they go, yep, I'm going to follow you. That's really important, right? Um, but you get side, you know, can sidetrack. So you have to project what the future looks like and say, hey, in five years, if I'm a $10 million company, you know, what does that look like? What's that equity cost me? If I'm a $100 million company, what does that equity cost me? And the decisions I make today are going to be impacting what that future looks like. So you really have to be delivered. So hard to do because you're so focused on just getting it moving on the tech and whatever you're doing. So um, I would tell people, take the time, take a breath, kind of project in the future, look at what that looks like, and then look at different uh, off-ramps. You know, hey, I need to off-ramp this technology because it's not going anywhere. What do I do? Or, or I need to off-ramp this employee or, or, or me and the other founders, we're, we're going in different directions. You know, what do I do? So build a plan that has some off-ramps and then everyone knows about it. So when you get to that off-ramp or that inflection point, you stop, you put it in park and you say, hey, look, where are we? Okay, this isn't working out. We're going this way, that way. You're going this way, I'm going that way, whatever. But, but it's deliberate, it's planned, it's intentional and uh, no hard feelings, right? So. Oh, I think that that's uh, definitely a great piece of advice and, uh, and, and great takeaway. So with that, as we're wrapping up the podcast, if people want to reach out to you, they want to uh, be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Yeah, so the best way to reach out to me is Jim at Veritex, V-E-R-I-T-X dot C-O. And uh, that's, uh, that's the main email that, that I respond to. I would tell, as we close, I would also tell folks, um, you know, there are very few times in your life where you get to a point where something interests you, you're at an inflection point, you have a vision for a future. Um, what, 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 what I tell all founders, and, and I do a lot to support founders, I mentor quite a few founders. Um, within our environment, everybody that works for us has got a side project going on. So we're trying to create almost a co-op environment that we, you know, rising tide lifts all ships. They learn from what we're doing. We're learning from them and so on. But what I tell people is it takes courage. I mean, I have done more things in the Air Force and flown missions and done this and done that, that I said, hey, this, this takes some courage. It doesn't take the courage. I mean, I was at the peak of my earning potential and I, I, I kind of checked that, looked over at my wife and said, hey, we're, we're going to go out and work for no money for a couple of years. And uh, I'm telling you, it takes a lot of courage and it takes strong mental health because there's so many lows in a startup that uh, if you can't manage yourself through the lows and see the, you know, the upside coming, um, you'll go crazy. Uh, so I would just tell you. Well, yeah, no, I think that's uh, definitely a great, uh, great. First of all, I encourage people to reach out, connect, and always uh, uh, utilize your service if they're in that industry or otherwise if they're looking to invest to connect there. And I think that's a, a great takeaway as well. So I appreciate that. So with that, as we're wrapping up the podcast, thank you again for coming on. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, we'd love to have you on the podcast and, uh, and share it. You can just go to uh, inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. And also, as a listener, make sure to click subscribe, make sure to click share, and make sure to leave us a review. So we want to make sure that everyone finds out about all these awesome episodes. So please make sure to, to do that. And last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents, trademarks, or anything else with your startup or small business, just go to strategymeeting.com. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast, James, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. I appreciate it, Devin. Thank you.